Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Fevlin. You're Fevlin? That's one after Devlin. I guess that would be Evelyn. Doesn't really roll off the tongue as well. You'd be Evelyn and I'd be Fryn. <laughs> I'd be Efren. That <laughs> we, are, uh, we are quickly approaching the end of the season and the end of the series. Um, and I have to say, I think this episode, it challenges me a bit as a viewer, but it, I won't. It's not my favorite. It's definitely proven to be polarizing. So far, it's got a really good review on IMDb. It's up there with um, 407 and 409. But I think that um, as I've rewatched it and I've kind of thought about it more, I'm not sure if I like it as much as I did on the first watch. But um, it still is a really great show. I mean, um, you always have to have faith in Esmail and the rest of the crew. And even when you don't think the episode is perfect, like it still is pretty damn good. The other thing I, I always think about when there's an episode that maybe doesn't really resonate with me is that it often sets up the story for something that's going to be really amazing. So sometimes I think it's also about working with the ebb and flow of the storytelling. And actually, all the extraordinary episodes are kind of polarizing. Like 410 was surprisingly more polarizing than I thought it would be. Yeah, I think that they're really going devil or nothing when it comes to these, um, well, the next two episodes. That wasn't the pun on devil or nothing. I was trying to say that they're taking some really bold steps when it comes to the conclusion. So um, it seems like something that could really make or break the series, um, knowing that it's always been written kind of with this endpoint in mind. And now we're going to be thinking about this as um, the final culmination of the series that's always been planned from the beginning. I'm just waiting to get my red wheelbarrow tattoo until I find out if they're going to do something batshit in the last two hours that <laughs> I might not agree with. Yeah, you should never get a tattoo from somebody um, who's still alive. That's why I didn't buy a cootie sweater. Buy a who sweater? Those are the sweaters that B.I.G. and Cosby wore. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just not that cool. <laughs> I did get a lot of satisfaction where the episode started off because, of course, we have been left at the end of 409 with the FBI storming uh, White Roses. I don't know if that's her New York mansion or, or where she's staying, but, you know, we hear them at the door um, while she's calmly applying her makeup. And I was dying to find out how that scene is going to conclude. It's great. I remember that um, during last episode, you had asked me if I um, was disappointed that they didn't address um, the aftermath of uh, Boyd Rose shooting Price. I think that um, now we know what happens next. I'm I'm okay to have waited for it, and I think that I'm also really happy that um, although there is that like one episode gap in between, they otherwise pick up right from where that storyline had left off. This whole scene gives me a bit of a sense of urgency too for the rest of the episode because White Rose must know that they're a wanted person, that the FBI is in pursuit of them, and now they've, you know really compounded that single murder situation uh, into something much, much larger. So all of the later scenes are taking place against that backdrop where White Rose is being, I would imagine, pursued by law enforcement. So the pressure of time really weighs on me through the rest of the episode. And I really like the sense of urgency that it gives it. I guess we know that those White Rose-centric episodes do always um, intend to convey a lot of urgency to kind of represent that White Rose is always one step ahead of you. I always think it's kind of funny when, um, even though they had like the really great quote about how Zheng was no longer there, they said it to somebody who like got shot a second later. So it really did absolutely nothing. And I always think it's funny when that happens in TV shows. But 
Still a pretty good quote. She should have like dropped the mic after. I was thinking about that too because the line is like it's such a good burn. But yeah, they do shoot them immediately afterwards. So uh but I was glad that we got to hear it. Yeah. So I guess Minister Zhang is the character who dies this episode. Because there's got to be one. Oh, yeah. I guess they are keeping up their pace of um, one character per episode then. Yeah. So there we go. So we get that out of the way nice and early. Well, who are the last two going to be? Will it be two in the two-part episode or only one? They have to have enough characters to make dialogue. <laughs> so <laughs> I really have to think that they can't afford to lose too, too many. Also, when we get to talking about the alternate universe later, you know, they've recycled, they've revived some people, you know, and that gives them a bit more, you know, room to play, I think, in terms of the story and the cast i do like that because um having lost so many characters over this season you kind of lose a bit of the variety that's inherent in just having so many different and like independently interesting characters so it's nice to have those back even if it's only for a little while we go back to the motel and we're back to that scene where the Alderson siblings are saying goodbye to each other. And so I guess this also helps us to anchor the story in time. So the shootout at White Rose's house is happening kind of in the backdrop. Um, and then we get the Aldersons, um, Dom and Darlene departing, um, and then Elliot going on to pursue his mission. I am really team Alderson sibling hack forever, and I really will miss seeing the two of them together. Yeah, I agree with you. I guess in some ways they do see Elliot as um, like the, the person who's really driving this story. But I know that Darlene also contributed so much and I would have liked to see her be more involved. On the other hand, I'm glad that this probably means she gets out alive. And I think that um, you've you've sort of convinced me that she may be the only person who who actually survives to the end. We should maybe talk for a second about, I guess it's awards season, and it's really unfortunate to me that I think Carly Chaikin has been passed over this time, because I just really think she's extraordinary this season. I absolutely agree. I um, I definitely don't know what I'm talking about here, but just like a random thought that I came up with. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that they only released the first um, five episodes for critics, um, like in advance of the season. And those ones that the critics probably would have seen earlier, I think were more like Elliot-centric. Whereas the ones where Darlene um, had really great performance, I would say that started in like the silent episode and then it started to get better from there. I really hope that's the case because I would also be disappointed to think that B.D. Wong didn't walk away with any nominations for this season because I also think he's done a really exemplary job. He deserves a nomination just for this scene <laughs> or rather one particular scene. <laughs> oh, this, yeah, when we get to talk about that, that, that blows my mind. But um, but first things first. Well, no pun intended. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> unintentionally tasteless of me. Um a couple more details of the motel scene. I find it interesting that I think this is Elliot's version of I can take care of myself because he is kind of kindly telling Mr. Robot that this next hack is really for Elliot to carry off alone. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was wondering, like we know that this is what Elliot's going to be doing. Um, he's going to be doing this by himself. Uh, and when Darlene departs, did you notice that he seems to like turn back and to actually address Mr. Robot? Do you think that's something that they're trying to actually uh, convey to us? I did think that. And so I'm not sure if that's sort of uh, just artful, just, you know, in order to have that um, 
you know, expression of caring in her Darlene way from Darlene to Mr. Robot, or if she's supposed to be able to see him, which she hasn't been until this moment. So, uh, but I did notice she addressed him directly. And I do think in 409, someone addresses him directly too, in a way that seems a little strange, maybe Price. So I'm not sure if that's just a storytelling device in this case, but I thought it was just the most Darlene way (laughs) to say that, you know, she had developed some affection for him. Uh, and I guess um, that is um, one of the most polite things Darlene has said to anybody, in fairness. So it's a bit of a, a carefree moment for her, too. I think that, that there also have been a bunch of scenes like when um, Robot and Elliot get out of a car together and both the car doors open. Or like later in this episode, they hit keys in a keypad and they try and open the door at the same time. So I think that there is like a lot of um, creative license that goes into how those two characters are portrayed, because we can remember that it's all an unreliable narrator in the end. And I think it has to be that way. I, I mean, it's certainly more elegant to do it that way rather than having, say, Christian Slater try to scramble over the like parking brake and <laughs> scuttle <laughs> at the same door or something. Um I wanted to talk about how I think, you know, through the series, there's sort of been the conversation uh, in the fandom about is the machine real? Is it an analogy? Price, I think, in 409 certainly leads us to believe that it's real, um, transmitting information to Elliot about stopping the machine. Elliot has written malware in order to make that machine totally unusable. We do have the scene, I think it's the first episode of season three, where they're on the tour of the plant, which I suppose contains the machine. So at this point, do you accept that the machine is a real physical working machine? I guess I do think that. And I I do call back to um, that episode you're talking about where we do, I think, have the only visual depiction of the machine on screen. So it actually, um, it it does kind of tell you that it's a machine and it's not really so abstract. Um, but it really doesn't tell you what its purpose is actually going to be for. So there still is a lot of uh, different ways it could go. Mr. Robot is pretty opposed to this. Um, Elliot seems to want to trace all of this difficulty right back to its origin uh, and kind of, you know, root, uproot it. Um, Mr. Robot seems to think that this will just be a war without end. And I feel like there's an illusion that I'm missing a significant quote about a war without end. Um, someone uh, wiser than me may recall it, but he thinks if Elliot goes down this road, it's never, ever going to stop. And he seems to be trying to protect him from that. I think I agree with your impression. Um, what do you think, Phil, about what he says? And how do you think that it actually relates to Elliot's and his kind of change in goals at this point? So I think he tells Elliot that if he doesn't find a place to stop, that he'll always find an injustice to confront. He'll always find people who have been victimized who need a champion. He'll he'll always find that because, unfortunately, that's part of the society that we live in. And I think given what we know about Elliot, he seems to be very mission-driven um, to the extent that he's, I think, sacrificed a great deal in his personal life in order to be able to be a person confronting those injustices. And so I do, I think, kind of agree with Mr. Robot's analysis. I don't know that Elliot would ever know when to stop. Yeah. And it's kind of like a a self-destructive and in that way, self-reinforcing cycle, because um, as he's losing more and more of his personal life, 
he's um, going to kind of see more and more injustice without having any kind of support or people to work with. We do get a glimpse of uh, Magda and baby Elliot in the distance. Um, Elliot dispatches Mr. Robot, sends him off with them, and then heads off on a Beach Boys-fueled bus trip. So the first thing is that I, I knew as soon as Mr. Robot was going away that there would be some Deus Ex Machina coming up later because um, this didn't really feel like the right time in the story for that to happen, I guess. And maybe it's something that like um, uh, is like a, a common trope for this part of the season, uh, this part of the series with little pull tricks like that. But um, it was funny when it ends up being proven right later on. Um, speaking of other foreshadowing, when we're on this bus... Uh, let me know that Elliot is writing on. Did you notice anybody else um, who I don't really put any focus on? No, I don't think I did. So it might be hard to recognize him because way in the back is um, the only sighting of Hamburger Man not eating a hamburger. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) How did I miss that? I'm always looking for Hamburger Man, (laughs) like on the street, at the grocery store. Like I'm looking for him. (laughs) He's dressed in streetwear. And I think that when he's not eating the hamburger, like you just can't even recognize him. He's like um, Clark Kent with the glasses on, where he's just like a totally different person without the hamburger. (laughs) Yeah, he takes his glasses off and I have no idea who he is. (laughs) Well, it's nice that he chose public transportation today. Yeah, good points. You'd think that um, Dark Army would probably give him something with a little more frills. Maybe he's just like a subcontractor and he has to find his own way to work. (laughs) Elliot, I guess they arrive simultaneously at the power plant, but we only see Elliot's entrance. Um, I think we are all start to get our uh, spidey sense tingling when he comes upon the security booth uh, and it's trashed and empty. I was thinking of um, in Final Fantasy 7 when they introduced Sephiroth by having like a long trail of blood and dismembered uh, Shinra employees. But for some reason, your character is kind of compelled to follow the violence and find out what the source is. Um, which, you know, if I, were, if I were a character in a horror movie, I don't think that's the decision I would make. <laughs> uh, but your curiosity would get the better of you, don't you think? Uh, not myself, but I guess that Elliot doesn't really have very much, uh, very much to lose at this point. And um, this is something that's been captivating him for his entire life. So it probably give him a lot of closure to finally figure out what's going on there. His sense of self-preservation is also extremely low. <laughs> exactly. The whole plant seems to be empty, except, of course, we know White Rose is there because all of the Christmas trees have been knocked over. Oh, man, I was going to make that joke. Oh, go ahead and make it. You can cut mine up. Oh, uh, joking. Let's very polite then. <laughs> Uh, we as siblings are too polite canadian siblings yeah that's true um i like how the sense of urgency really gradually builds so of course we know white rose is being pursued we start to see a whole bunch of cops arriving on the scene so we know it's a matter of time before Shit really goes down, but a lot has to happen for that moment. Of course, inside the plant, there's dead people everywhere. Yeah, and then they make it look really tense, and all he's doing is um, staring at a screen that's typing automatically. <laughs> I can't tell if what he's using here is um, the same rubber ducky that we've seen come up at other points in the series, because it says bad USB on it, which I think is a different kind of like USB-based um, uh, attack vector. And... Um, Another interesting thing is that you can make it with a Raspberry Pi, which is what I 
why I conflated it earlier. And it's called um, Ducky Pie, I think. It's made by Sammy. So you can also make one of these yourself for like $5. Nice. I also think I will make an art rock band called Bad USB. <laughs> what would USB stand for? Like, would you use the as it is or would it just be up to your imagination i think up to your imagination like cam fdm or <laughs> hamburger man speaks so i guess we had, we have the first scene where he's not eating a hamburger and then the first scene where he says something i wonder if that gets him into the actors guild or something well yeah maybe he gets benefits i hope so <laughs> uh he arrives he's got hired goons a lot of goons are you waiting for me to say the hired goons joke? Sometimes you say it and sometimes you don't, but this might be your last chance. They've edited it out once, so I've been taking it personally. But here, here's your sandbite. Hired goons. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I like the song that plays through this. It's called White Widow. It was giving me a lot of the um, Moth and the Flame vibes. Yeah. And who are all the portraits with the faces blacked out? I don't know. And... um. Some of them are painted in different colors and it seems um, not to have like a specific pattern, but it's like red, black, white, black or something like that. So now we get into Elliot's red room scene. This scene is amazing. I think that we've all been looking forward to this scene. Um, well, for so long. And I'm so glad to finally see it. Now, Angela's phone was red and Elliot's is blue. Huh. And I'm not sure if there's, I don't know if it's like a cheeky, like a matrix parallel or or why there is a difference between the colors on the phones. That's a good question. I know that they do kind of use color to separate those two characters. Like there was that really famous shot of them both um, like leaning on the door that you could see in, in the cross section where Angela was in like the dark red room and Elliot was in a brighter one. So um, it also kind of made me to think of that. We have a reference here to uh, a Tolstoy novel. And so people in a Tolstoy know there are no short works. And so unfortunately, I was not able to complete reading it in time for this recording. But Resurrection, that's a novel that Elliot said his father used to read. And if I really boil it down, um, it's the story of a man who does a terrible thing to someone. And then he has to watch as that person lives with the consequences of their actions for the rest of their lives. Um, it's also a novel that's sort of broadly about uh, social inequality, uh, which really became Tolstoy's preoccupation, I think, towards the end of his writing career. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't um, read so much about it, so I'm glad that you were able to pick up on those details. I think that um, another thing he says, in addition to the book um, being read by his father, is that um, I think this is also like a computer and a phone that he used as a kid. So maybe this is also suggesting the things that we had seen in Angela's red room were also things from her childhood as well. I mean, even herself was there. <laughs> right. Now, the attention to detail here makes me think that White Rose is a very good gift giver. Like she knows you and what you want. Yeah, but I also feel like they probably know what you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> White Rose is here um, in her shipping day dress uh, from the flashback memory uh, with Chen uh, looking so beautiful and so composed. One question I have here, it seemed like moving the project to the Congo was such a big part of the story and there's so much drama around achieving the ability to do that. And it just seems like Congo is kind of out of the picture or was a red herring at this point. 
Yeah, I totally agree because I think that um, for one, like we know how White Rose had reacted um, to the bad news about the annexation of the Congo when we first saw her um, destroy the like glasses that were around her. Um, and that was also the leverage that Elliot was able to use to bargain for his own life in the barn scene at the end of um, season three. So both of those give you the impression that it is really important for White Rose. But maybe um, they just have so much pressure on them right now that they feel like they're running out of time. And um, that now it's like a now or never situation. That must be it, because I had really thought they were going to have until New Year's Day to execute this. But maybe the raid on the house and all the dead FBI agents has kind of pushed the timeline a little bit faster. That reminds me. But you notice that when the FBI is storming in, they shout, um, execute, execute, execute. No, I didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, that seems like a bit of a, a metaphor there. All the metaphors in this episode are so dark. Um, in in this scene, um, the dialogue between White Rose and Elliot, I, I can't decide what I think is more extraordinary. B.D. Wong's delivery of their lines or the way they respond to Elliot delivering his lines. It's just, it's so understated and nuanced and really beautiful, really beautiful work here. Yeah, this is that scene that I was talking about earlier when I said that B.D. Wong um, absolutely deserves some awards here. I think that um, they they both have a really great performance um, and it's cool to see how they can kind of... Um, I think like you were saying, support each other and kind of elevate each other and add more to the tension without um, accidentally breaking it. And there is some opportunity for it in some of like the more dramatic things that they're saying. But um, yeah, like very great performance from both of them. Something that does really stand out in a series that already was known for its great acting. I can't tell if White Rose has misplayed her hand here because it seems like all of this is orchestrated to test what she believes to be true, which is that she and Elliot are on the same page and have the same goal and really think that society needs to be annihilated in order to start again in a kinder, gentler way. Doesn't some of the speech that she uses um, make you think of the things that Elliot had said to Krista in the pilot, his like fuck society monologue? Oh, absolutely. Or talking about how the suffering people experience as individuals is a result of the choices, the the little choices and the big choices that are made by people around them every day and how painful that experience can be for people who are othered and alienated from that mainstream society. I, I really felt like they're very analogous. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that the show does such a great job of um, demonstrating to us is that overall moral ambiguity and that the characters are sometimes a lot more similar than they would seem at first. One... Oh, one thing this made me think of is that however Elliot and White Rose might feel about each other's end goals as they perceive them. Um, there's an old quote that it made me think of uh, by Che Guevara, of all people, uh, who said that a true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. And it seems that both are expressing their love for the bright spots in humanity, for humans better potential their better natures in spite of all of the things they have individually suffered and lost and the prices they paid um for the the darker parts of society well it's interesting i didn't know that he had very many other quotes attributed to him except for that time that he died yeah we won't focus on that one for today <laughs> one thing i found really extraordinary too about white rose's dialogue here 
is that she talks about how she's suffered in her life, but she has so much compassion, even, and I think Elliot expresses it too, even her people who act badly because the world has dealt them a bad hand. So it does seem like um, they still do retain a sense of like ultimate justice in the world. Um, And Elliot in his own way describes something similar, don't you think? I think so. I think it's even clearer, even stronger in in Elliot's um, response back to her. And you can see her sort of soften as she hears him speak. There was one point where I wasn't sure if she was shedding a tear, which would obviously be a, a very dramatic moment. But I honestly couldn't tell if it was also just my cursor being on top of my screen. So I was hoping one of you two would mention it. I didn't catch it if it was there. <laughs> so. Yeah, she she cried. Well, thank you, producer Dave. Um, the line that really sticks out for me and all of this is, we're all told we don't stand a chance and yet we stand. And I think that's the last line we get to hear before we realize the machines are already on. The malware has already been discovered, so there's no rescue mission for them now. They're they're just too far. I think White Rose sees activating the machine and this really dramatic step as a rebirth that's going to give everyone who's suffered in this current world the world they deserve. Now, she says that it's going to be Elliot's choice. And at first, I'm confused by this because he says no, don't do it. And then she shoots herself anyway. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the really big um, moments that happens in this episode. I think um, they kind of leave it ambiguous um, if we'll ever actually see this character again, what they're what they're actually doing here and what the next steps are going to be. But it's like you said, it's um, really sudden, really dramatic. And then Elliot is left with the decision to leave, which Mr. Robot tries to convince him to do. Or to continue participating in this weird red room escape room. (laughs) The worst escape room ever. Um, Or the best, depending on how hardcore you are. (laughs) No, I do want to talk about the, um, and there should be, I guess, a content warning uh, on this part of the episode. I do want to talk a little bit about the suicide scene. Because when we were talking offline, we were talking about how this is a little bit more complicated to process as a viewer than some of the other deaths by suicide we've seen in the series. Yeah. And I guess we should have foreseen it because we've known that that's one thing that underlines all of the characters in the dark army, even Grant um, died by suicide at the instruction of white Rose. So we might've been able to anticipate that at the time, but um, yeah, like you said, I think that it still is really complicated to actually take it. And um, to be more explicit about it in case, um, I'm speaking for you. You can like stop me or correct me if I'm wrong. But I think what we're talking about is that um, trans people already have in real life like a, a much higher um, risk of of suicides than um, people who belong to other communities. So it's kind of distressing to see that um, to, the, to see like that be the culmination of a character who was so like badass and powerful in her own life here. Um, I would have liked for kind of to end a different way for them. And I guess they probably still could take it in any different direction. But um, I was just a little disappointed, like at this one point. I think so, too. I think it wasn't the best. And especially seeing it on screen wasn't the best. And so it affected me a little bit differently as a viewer than the other deaths we've seen. And, And I agree with you. I just I thought I think being a trans character does make a difference. Um, 
so not my favorite part. Um, and but of course, you know, what's ever final in the Mr. Robot universe. <laughs> And I hate how we don't really figure that out this episode, but I guess um, they're just going to leave us on our toes. And we can kind of see how um, how in this episode they really ratchet up the tension and then they kind of let it all off at once. And it turns into kind of a weird, surreal mystery. <laughs> so the machine's working, alarms are going off. Mr. Robot is there now. He's there to help Elliot in the situation. They're trying to figure out how to get out of the room. And when he picks up the blue phone, the voice is saying 0509. So it seems like that's the key for the um, for the keypad. That was a super way to phrase that. But obviously, there's also the other symbolism with the five nine hack, and that's going to come up much more throughout the rest of this episode. There's so many references to it, and I wish I had made better notes. Um, but there's something I want to say about eleven sixteen later on in the episode too. So five nine reference here. Mister Robot really just wants to bail, um, and he's not very persuasive with Elliot about that because this is when Elliot finds the choice White Rose had given to him. So the choice is a game, a real old school floppy disk game. So you can actually play this game on whoismrrobot.com. Did you play it? No, I figured that it wouldn't work in my weird browser, but actually I should credit them. Maybe they would make it work on Linux. I feel like you're not the only viewer perhaps running Linux. <laughs> it seems that the key decision point in the game is whether you leave behind a friend who is too weak to follow you through a tunnel. We can also think of another time where similar um, dialogue has been used way back in the pilot when Elliot is finding the note that was left by F Society, which says, um, uh, leave me here. Oh my God, I had forgotten all about that. So yeah, that was a kind of a contrary note. And we see here that um, it kind of takes like two attempts to get to the result that is actually desired. Do you think you want to talk a bit about like the difference between the two plays there? I do, because I think it's it's very much like the scene in the woods in 404 where Terrell says to him, go on without me. And at first he kind of, you know, he gets all upset and he tells him to die there. He walks off into the dark. And then he reconsiders and he goes back for him. Oh, wow. So it really plays out almost the same way. I think so. Um, in the first iteration of the game, he leaves the friend behind and that's how he loses. In the second iteration of the game, which he really definitely does not have time to be playing, <laughs> he lights a match. So shed some light on the situation. He chooses to stay with the friend uh, who's too weak to carry on. And we get a brief kind of respite here because the alarms stop. But that's when the plant blows sky high. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when the alarm stops, that's even worse than if there are. <laughs> I suppose, you know, I don't know if it's supposed to be that there's victory in the game and that even though there's this massive explosion, that that's what gives him access to this better world that we're about to talk about. Oh, I could definitely see that. Um one thing that I saw mentioned on Reddit, and maybe I won't like dig too much into it in case it goes nowhere and then we can just axe it, but do you know about the allegory of the cave? Only a little bit. Um, well, it's kind of like about uh, uh, the concept of if you were raised in a cave and you had never seen light except um, shadows that were being cast by the outside into the inside, that if a person went outside, came back and tried to describe the physical world to you, um, it wouldn't even be comprehensible or com <laughs> you wouldn't be able to comprehend it because um, it just doesn't like even exist within your framework of reality. 
So um, it kind of also has that um, the concept of like forbidden knowledge that unlocks access into the second universe. There's also the expression to a worm and horseradish. The whole world is horseradish. <laughs> when are worms ever with horseradish? They shouldn't be. It can't be very pleasant or comfortable. But I think it's a colorful way of saying that we all become acclimatized to our environment, the attitudes and behaviors we're surrounded by. And it's really hard to notice those consciously because they're kind of part of the furniture, if you will. Oh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So um, your your analogy was probably more elegant than that one, but that's an yeah. expression that I, I enjoy. Um, well, there's furniture here too, so that's a good comparison, I would say. We do get a really lovely scene where uh, Elliot and Mr. Robot exchange I love yous. And then Elliot says to Mr. Robot... It's an exciting time in the world, which Mr. Robot said to him, well, it's the day I believed that they met in the subway. Right. I think it was one of the very first scenes that we saw back in the pilot. So it does call back all that time. And um, yeah, it's a really it's a really poignant moment. So when they, when they sit there and exchange those words, because I feel like it's not really something that you would have expected at the beginning of a series. I guess all it takes is the literal end of the world for you know, these two guys to express their feelings. Yeah, I guess it's um, it's like quote from Fight Club. It's only after you've lost everything, you're free to do anything. Oh, that's good. I feel like there are too many people who put that on a shirt and made it seem really stupid. But in this context, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, just a quick point on the subway conversation. So I'm sure this will play into the... Um, different alters theories which i still haven't quite figured out but i think that we as viewers all believe that mr robot and elliot met you know back in probably march you know in the subway um when they're having those conversations including that it's an exciting time in the world conversation and so i'm not really clear on which elliot that was at that time and which elliot's are proceeding through the rest of the episode so one thing that i think is worth mentioning is that this weird bizarro elliot who's been called Felliot, which is why I made that joke at the top of the show. Um, he uses um, Apple products, both an iPhone and um, like a, a Mac Pro computer or something like that. So um, obviously completely uh, opposite of the Elliot that we're familiar with. But if you look all the way back to the pilots, um, there are a few shots where he's using a, a cracked iPhone. So um, I wonder, we also see another cracked iPhone later in this episode. Maybe um, there's something going on there, Donnie Darko style. Time will tell. Yeah. So here we are in alternate universe. What's the first thing you notice that's different? The first thing I notice that's different is Elliot's apartment seems curated. Yeah, actually. I think that's um, at first I didn't realize that this was even supposed to be the same apartments. But what really made it stand there for me was this um, this OK Go song, which I, I blasted uh, all the time when it first came out. And it's another one of those things that we just know that our Elliot wouldn't be listening to that music. Do you feel like a record player is like a tiny bit like too like hipstery for our Elliot? Yeah. And that's really just the start of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So Elliot is uh, is cheerful. It is cheerful here in this alternate universe. Um, although there is an earthquake. What's the significance of that earthquake, do you think? Well, who knows? It's just a you know minor earthquake. Nothing to think about. Yeah, is five point nine on the Richter scale minor? I have no idea because uh, the, if there's one thing I know about the Richter scale, it's that it's logarithmic. So there's a really big difference between five and six and seven and stuff. So 
I don't really have any frame of reference, but I think that we can see that it's not really like an end of the world situation for these characters. Aside from Hamburger Man, um, you know, the star of this episode, uh, we have some excellent cameos and I think it's probably to the delight of most viewers, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm just so glad that they were able to fit in these characters before the end of the show. And uh, yeah, maybe I don't think anybody expected that. I think there had been a lot of speculation about why Portia Doubleday had perhaps left the show. But her return in this episode makes me think that there's really nothing untoward about it. I think she was working on a Hollywood project. I think there have been a lot of rumors there. And maybe I won't get into the rumors. But if uh, if they were just busy, that's maybe one of the better ways that it could have went. We get some information from their FaceTime conversation. So I guess FaceTime is an Apple thing too, right? Yes. Elliot's got a big headache and a big presentation today. He also is moving. And I think the one thing that's really sad about this alternate universe is that he's an only child in it. Yeah, and that is so sad. Um, It's something that you kind of need to infer from it not being there up until the point of Angela actually saying, you're such an only child. And yeah, at that point, they're really trying to nail it in, I guess. (laughs) My favorite internet conspiracy theory about this episode is that Joanna will return and Darlene will be her daughter. Or Joanna will be the woman who kidnapped Darlene as a child. Whatever happens to Joanna's kids, too? Like, maybe they'll come in here later. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, I would love to see Joanna. Joanna's kind of conspicuously absent. And a couple of other of our faves, I think. Was there anyone you were hoping to see that you didn't see? Um, Definitely Gideon. I thought that we were going to see him. Um... And I, I shouldn't say that I was disappointed. Well, no, that's going to sound even worse. But <laughs> I'm also happy that we had a different character who is in his position. We can talk about that later. But yes, yes. But it was, was sad not to see Gideon. <laughs> I agree. Gideon was possibly the only, like, truly, fully decent person in this whole show. And then we can see that um, sometimes bad things can still happen to those characters. Or maybe actually more than the other characters. So just while we're briefly on the subject of Gideon, I have been trying to think of some significance for the numbers 1116. And so I thought about um, the book of Job is the book in the Christian Bible that kind of asks the question, what do bad things happen to good people? Um, And Job is also a prophet in the Quran. But Job 1116 says, you will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Oh, wow. I'm not super familiar with that, but we also know that the show has a lot of um, like biblical symbolism and terminology in it, right? I think a little bit. Um, I also, I mean, it's been um, some years since Catholic school for me, um, but I thought it makes sense in a way just because the show is so much about memory and forgetting. And that, of course, in this better universe, this alternate universe, your troubles have really been forgotten like water's gone by. Um, but I thought of Gideon because Gideon is also the one character where I think in his death, we think, oh, my God, terrible things could even happen to the truly good. Yeah. And that just goes to show you that in this universe, there's nobody who's really safe from that kind of violence. Did you notice any other 1116s in this episode? Yeah. So there are two sets of numbers that come up a bunch, one of them being five, nine. Um, like we saw, that was the key code in the red room and also the magnitude of the earthquake. 1116 comes up a few times because um it's the time that Elliot wakes up at. Um, and he's also a pretty lazy CEO if he's waking up at 1116. <laughs> but um, he gets the the FaceTime call from Angela at 1116. And then even later when he gets the email from Edward Alderson, 
um, it still is 11.16. So um, there seems to be some funkiness going on with the time here. And um, speaking of funky things, what do you think of the world's best dads uh, sign that we see next to Edward Alderson? They're really trying to show us the contrast between his two universes. Huh? Didn't Irving had a mug that said world's best dad on it? Didn't he have a gag where he had like a cup that was world's best dad and then world's best mom and then world's best like dog lover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he would just switch it yeah. up to try to please whoever he was talking to. But you're right. Cause in this universe, maybe the weirdest thing about it is that Elliot's got um, a nice dad who cares about him, who's uh, alive and involved in his life. Do you remember when was it you or one of our other siblings got me a nameplate that had printed on it above average? <laughs> <laughs> no. Did I? I kept it on my desk for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that seems so our family, um, but so weird. <laughs> Do you still have it? No, I wish I did. Oh, we'll get another one made up for you. <laughs> Um, one uh, major detail we shouldn't forget here because I think it forms the basis of the next episode is that they're getting married. Angela and Elliot are getting married. They're getting married tomorrow. And that's, I think, all the information we get from Angela's phone call with him. Right. And um, I guess, it, what do you think about like uh, that, that bit of a twist in the relationship in this different universe? I think I like it. I think, of course... There was that one scene where they kind of kissed each other on the subway, and I think they'd always loved each other. You, you know, and, oh, you're right about that. And you know, I don't know if I would have thought it was romantic love before now, but you know, I think uh, they're such good friends, and they've been friends for such a long time that I think that feels like a a gratifying end. If that's how Elliot and Angela's story ends. Yeah, I can see it that way, too, because, I mean, it, like you're saying, they have been setting it up with some other scenes between them. And they've had a connection for such a, a great majority of their life. But um, I guess, like, at this point, it didn't feel like Elliot and Angela was going to be the end game. So it feels like a bit like it's coming out of left field to me. Well, it sort of is coming out of left field because we, you know, Angela's been dead for 10 episodes. Oh, yeah. And this whole universe was created like five minutes ago. So maybe that's why it's so confusing. Exactly. Although, of course, in the... I mean, I forgot the episode now, but when Elliot is withdrawing from uh, opiates and he has what we think at the time is that hallucination where he proposes to her in the restaurant and then they're getting married. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. And um, isn't that the part where they get cut off from their speech and you don't actually figure out what they say? Well, they never make it as far as the ceremony because Angela says to him, you're not Elliot. You were only born a month ago. And I thought that's the, I thought that scene was just full of like surrealist throwaway content, but no, it seems like it was actually like really laying out the whole story for us. Although she really ate Cordy, I'll never get over it. Well, we did see Cordy um, in the the red room. Thank you. I needed that. I hope that at least Cordy made it out alive. I believe he did. I believe he swims in a beautiful bathtub-sized fishbowl forever. <laughs> Is that what heaven is like for fish? i just taken a guess. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you think F Corp stands for? Fun Corp? <laughs> oh, well, it does make me think of the comparison between E Corp and F Corp. Like, uh, sorry, E Corp and F Society. Because now F Corp seems like it has the first um, letter being the same as F Society. Um, all it really makes me think is that it's what comes after E Corp. And um I loved the rainbow color for it. Did you did you catch that that was like a reference to? Yeah. So I was going to say, do you think the implication of the logo is that it's a queer positive company? 
Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Oh, it's, um, <laughs> it's a reference to the old um, Apple computer logo, which oh. was like um, Rainbow Card. <laughs> I was so delighted to think it was just, just the queerest computer company. <laughs> I like my interpretation better, although it was. Maybe it was during Pride Month where everybody puts on the Rainbow logos. Oh, I take it. All right. All right. I, I, I'm sure you're right, but I liked my interpretation better. <laughs> I've gotten too far down the Torelliot hole, I think. <laughs> um, I just want to say for the record that I think Ollie's appearance is the opposite of fan service. It's like fan service, yeah. Yes. Somehow, I was texting at the time, I was like, how is Bizarro Ollie even more creepy than like regular Ollie? Oh, he's just the worst. And I really thought we were over it. And I don't understand why we needed the cameo, except that hating somebody's fun, maybe. Yeah, it's like Millhouse. Oh, do we hate Millhouse? <laughs> Some of us do. Oh, okay. Nobody likes Millhouse. <laughs> I thought we all felt like Millhouse was our slightly awkward little brother. <laughs> um, excuse me? <laughs> Are you comparing me to Millhouse? <laughs> our collective metaphorical little brother. <laughs> I always thought I was more like a combination of Bart and Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> you are more a combination of Bart and Lisa. <laughs> Um, um, but yes yes Ollie's here I guess enough about Ollie the other thing I wanted to talk about in this world is that when we see on the news we see that um, Zhizhang is the world's richest woman philanthropist running Deus Giving and I think and I think my interpretation at first was a little bit problematic because I assumed when I first saw it that the fix was that, oh, White Rose now lives in a woman's body. Yeah, I think that's um, that was my interpretation, too. But they don't really make it explicit. And maybe that's good. Maybe we wouldn't really want to know explicitly, but it does really change the way you interpret um, the conclusion for White Rose. So when I rewatched it, I thought there's nothing actually about the scene that tells me that the solve is that White Rose was born into a female body. And I think that would have been kind of problematic for that to be the interpretation. I think it's a lot more, I think, positive and encouraging to think White Rose is who she is in a world where she no longer has to hide behind the facade of Zhang and doesn't have to hide who she really is and gets to be happy and accept it anyway. I really prefer that interpretation. I am still kind of sad that it seemed like suicide was part of like it was like a requirement to actually achieve whatever her ultimate goal was. But if the ultimate goal was that um, they could only feel affirmed by like actually changing their born biology, then um, I don't really think that that's like a, a very agreeable message. I would agree with that. And so let's go with our agreeable interpretation. <laughs> I also much prefer Deus giving to the Deus group. What did you say? I said, I much prefer Deus giving to the Deus group. Oh, agreed. And they also have the, the White Rose Foundation, right? Yes, they do. So I, I think all of that's really lovely. She's living her best life. And good for her. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice. You know, I think there was good in that character. That's the really deeply compelling thing about this series for me is that even a character who is a villain has so many strengths and moral challenges um, and ambiguities that... I think White Rose is, you know, not a villain that I want to condemn at the end of the day. 
Yeah, yeah. I feel like I I wish there were more shows where the villain ended up being completely right in the end. Yeah, wouldn't that uh, wouldn't that be a twist? Speaking of twists, I like how long they try to pretend it's not Terrell in the room in the F Corp <laughs> presentation scene. Even though he looks different in like an uncanny valley kind of way, um, I could still tell it was him right away. Maybe it's just because I'm such a, a, a Wallstrom obsessed fan or something. A funnier joke that I would have made is if it's if it's if, it's if um, Remy Malik's brother Sammy Malik showed up for his role in this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. I think he's still fundamentally Terrell, even though he's so different. But do you notice how quickly he starts bossing everyone else around in Elliot's place? Like he asks <laughs> people to leave the room. He's the one who invites Elliot to sit down. <laughs> like he's very much in charge still. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like um, he's kind of going for that, like, Steve Jobs look, which is another like reason to think that the logo um, in this place is like an Apple reference. You know, I think they work at different companies, right? Um, I don't know. No, he works at F Corp. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that is totally it. Um, and I think that, like, when you are so rich, like, you can afford not to care about how you look. <laughs> and that's kind of like the, the title that we see here. I think... The other way I really know that Terrell is always Terrell is he just jumps right into the deep conversation. Like there's no, you know, how are you? How's your fiance? It's right into, you know, please tell me, you know, your nagging thoughts about why your perfect life is a burden. <laughs> so do you think that this might be some coded dialogue between Tyrell and Elliot trying to suss out this new situation that they might be in. I kind of thought that maybe like Tyrell was trying to hint that he also had come from this other world. You think that's what he's trying to say, not in so many words? Um, I guess so. Like you really absolutely never know, but I can see that maybe like um, uh, interpretation that I've seen is that Tyrell um it has something to do with like those blue lights that he had seen. Maybe that transported him into this world and um, he can still remember what had went on before that. I think I would believe that this, I think people are calling him, would we say it O-Terrell? What's that mean? A-U-Terrell, alternate universe Terrell. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying like French, like of Terrell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now that I think about it, if what they're each signaling to each other in their conversation about how they both perhaps long for more exciting lives, which certainly they have in the other reality, I wonder if he isn't signaling to Elliot that he knows. Um, another thing is like I made a, a joke about how he was rich enough not to care about how he looks. But if we do remember back to that 404 episode, he does kind of have a discussion about how he always wears suits and like it's because status is so important so considering that in this universe there are people who kind of um are living in a universe that's more close to what they actually idealize um it also seems to indicate that tyrell doesn't feel the obligations to always be wearing suits and looking at his vests all the time i think there is a there is a saying that confidence is quiet and so there does seem to be a confidence about this character where he perhaps isn't so sensitive to other people's judgments about wearing a hoodie to a significant meeting or something like that. And also it was pointed out on uh, Twitter many times that he also appears to be wearing 
the same purple shirt as Gideon under that hoodie. And the glasses kind of invoke some Gideon symbolism. So I don't know if they're trying to consciously draw a parallel there, but he does certainly seem much more relaxed and confident than the Terrell we knew, who I think was fueled ultimately by insecurity and fear of loss at all times. And he also had that bad relationship with his father that they never really sussed out very much. Maybe what they're telling us is that Gideon is his father. Whoa, I would love that. <laughs> his nice dad, Gideon, his nice two dads who loved him very much. That wouldn't actually be much more strange than the Price Angela reveal. I'm into it. <laughs> Were we also hoping for um, Price Rose at one point? These characters need to stop dying. I liked Price Rose when they were both purely evil, though. I think that would have been excellent. Yeah, it's like a kind of uh, evil version of the odd couple. Yeah, like I think they would have destroyed each other. Like that would have been mutually assured destruction, Price Rose. <laughs> That's what the sitcom can be called. <laughs> mutually assured destruction with B.D. Wong. <laughs> Now, we have just a couple more scenes left in the episode. Uh, Elliot and Mr. Robot meet up for lunch. This is Edward Alderson. Sorry, that's correct. It's Edward Alderson. Oh, A.U. Edward Alderson, <laughs> his nice dad. And I'm still having a hard time adapting to that. Who's helping him pull off a surprise, a pre-wedding surprise for Angela. Do you think that they aged up Christian Slater or aged him down? I actually thought he looked extra gray in his beard from the very beginning of the episode. So I think he's aged up a tiny bit. <laughs> I think so too. The secret is that they have found a signed copy of the book that Elliot and Angela loved as children. And of course, in the reality, we know they were inspired by it to run away from home and hide out in the museum. That's what happens in this story. So it seems like in this kinder, gentler reality, maybe they didn't do that, but it's still Angela's favorite childhood book. And so Elliot wants to sneak it into her house while she's out. This book is also the origin of Angela's hacker name, Claudia Kincaid. So he does sneak the book into Angela's apartment and he's acting like super obvious and suspicious. Um, when he's there, he sees in her garbage can, there's a broken glass and some blood and he makes a comment about how her dad's a bit of a drinker. So it sounds like maybe in this reality, she has the not so nice dad. Oh, that's sad. I think that when you see this in garbage, it is kind of the first glimpse you have that not all is well in this universe. I actually wonder if we're going to see Price as her, like, dad who raised her in this universe. I'm really curious about that, too, because we know that Price is her biological father in, like, the primary universe, um, universe A. But over here in universe two, um, she could have her own adopted father from the other universe or she could still be um, related to Bryce. I agree with you that this is, I think, the first time I think something might be really wrong because Angela's dad in the in the regular universe is a nice dad who cares about her a lot. And so if he's been replaced by someone not as nice and not as affirming and not as supportive as that dad, then I kind of wonder what's going on. Yeah. And um, another thing that's kind of like drew a comparison between Elliot and Angela was in the Red Room when we saw that the um, Leo Tolstoy book was one that his father had read and these were other items from his childhood. So if I'm right, that that also means that Angela's items were from her childhood, then maybe um, Lolita and Resurrection are both supposed to kind of have symbolic references to each of these characters' lives. And that can give us a bit um, of uh, a, a bit of a foreshadowing about what might be to come. 
in Angela's red room, do they ask if she hates her father? Yeah. Yeah. So there's something up there. And just because of all the bad dad stuff in the show, it makes me nervous. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the real... I guess mindfuck is the only word that I have for it (laughs) comes in the final scene of the episode. So Elliot, mission accomplished. He's had a great day. He's feeling good. He goes back home and someone has snuck into his apartment, which actually happens to this guy like quite a bit. I was going to say that about Angela, too. Like, I like how even in this alternate universe, they still just break into each other's apartments. That's their primary mode of communication. (laughs) But who's waiting for Elliot in Elliot's apartment? Kevin. No, sorry, that's in my... (laughs) (laughs) It's also Elliot's. (laughs) So, and of course, because it's the last scene... And we're left with this real cliffhanger and we know the only thing to come yet is the finale. We know we have questions about an altar who hasn't been identified. We know that they've just passed through White Rose's machine into this other universe. It's so shocking to think that two Elliots can coexist and see each other and speak to each other in this universe. And now I truly have no idea what is happening. And they really are taking it into what seems to be like a really hard sci-fi direction. You touched on um, the fact that the third altar is still a mystery. Do you think that maybe two Elliots or two of the altars? I'm not disinclined to think that. Because I was noting that um, this bizarro Elliot is using Apple products, which um, Elliot also did that one time in the pilot. So it seems like maybe there could have been different Elliots at play in different times. And I also wonder, like... um, this is more of an open-ended question that I'm still trying to figure out, but like, what are all of the different situations where Elliot has lost time in addition to that, like three days over five, nine. And what does that tell us about who the other character could be? I have a feeling that once we watch the final two episodes, we're going to feel a need to go back to the beginning. And I think things are going to seem different to us once we have that complete information. So what's your hot take on the, um, the, the sci-fi twist here? If you even do think that it's sci-fi. I think I'm starting to lean more in that direction. I have to say, so I watched this episode three times and the first two, I thought this alternate universe is a projection like we've seen in the surreal scenes in previous episodes. They're storytelling devices that are meant to reveal things to us the viewer and are not intended to be taken literally so like the celebratory dinner that i think it's thanksgiving in the alley or like the first time that we think angela and elliot are going to get married all of those scenes i thought they illuminate things for us but they're kind of magical realism i'm not intended to interpret them literally and i have to say I think I might be leaning in a sci-fi direction just because I think Price giving the USB to Elliot, um, Elliot writing the malware, I think the the power going out, I think they all start to corroborate a, a reality to me. But again, I feel very uncertain about that. Now, do you think this, is this real? Is this really happening or is this an illusion? I'm so cautious to say, because I know that the odds of me being right at this point are so, so, so slim. So no matter what, it's going to sound stupid come next week. But um, I think that like to start off with, you're right that it could um, it could kind of be um, not only similar to the hallucination scene, but also the um, like the sitcom intro in season two, 
which was um, a situation where we saw one of the altars kind of take over to explicitly protect um, Elliot from trauma that he was experiencing in his real life. So if um, you can imagine that Elliot is being incinerated right now, then maybe this is something that um, he's kind of being presented with as an alternate reality. Um, a lot of this does kind of crux on um, White Rose, because I think that one thing that they said that we didn't really address was that um, they were shooting themselves to show Elliot the same thing she had shown Angela. So that kind of suggests that it's something that she's already done before. I was kind of expecting that she might like resurrect herself in that timeline. And that was the um, evidence that she gave to Elliot and Angela that would convince them to be on her side. But um, yeah, like it's really hard to tell what White Rose is going to do for the, the remaining two episodes as well. If they're in them at all, which I'm also uncertain about. Yeah, well, I guess we have a bit of a spoiler or hint that they might not be in it. You never really know. It seems like that might be the case. And um, if it is, would you feel like that was a good conclusion for them? I think I'll feel disappointed if that's the last scene that we see. Not only because I just have this feeling that White Rose can never die, but I just, I don't think I'm going to feel like that's a satisfying end to that character's struggle and story. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I do agree. And I guess like they are still living in this other weird matrix universe. If that's, I think that's like the way that I'm interpreting it right now. But I think that's um, one thing I think that we might've mentioned, we might've overlooked is that Darlene um, is not in this universe. So there is kind of like um, an Angela or Darlene decision that has to be made about if he will kind of decide to go back into that other universe um, or if he'll decide to stay in this one. Where not only does he have Angela to marry, but he also has a better relationship with his father. So I think that when White Rose says that Elliot has a choice, I think that's what they're talking about. I have one last question for you before we wrap up the episode. What's that? Will you feel like it's a satisfying ending? If they just stay in this timeline where everyone lives a happy, uncomplicated life? Um, good question. I mean, I, I think that even when you talk about it in terms like that, you could still look at it in finer detail and talk about all the different ways that it could arrive at that conclusion. So I could see a way that would make me be happy about it. But um, at the other, on the other hand, um, We've been talking about how Darlene might be the only survivor. And maybe is that like an orthogonal question or is that something that's also related to the decision to stay in or go to one of the other universes? Like how does um, Darlene play into it? That's a really great question. And the only thing I'm relieved about is that we don't have to sit in suspense for too much longer. So we really have just a few more days before we'll have probably more questions, but at least more answers. And then think about all of the waiting we'll be doing after that. My goodness. <laughs> it's honestly so sad. I feel like we need to make um, a retrospective episode after the, after the end. Oh, yeah. Greatest hits. And bloopers. Definitely bloopers, of which there are many, mostly mine. Um, <laughs> well, until next week, thank you so much for listening to Mr. Rewatch. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.